The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Okay, hi everyone. Um, I'm Orla. Thank you all for coming and I'm one of the conveners of the staff postgraduate seminar series in the School of English along with Janice and Maggie um, and I'm delighted to welcome you all today to this evening's talk um, which is actually the penultimate seminar in our series this year so it's hard to believe that the year has gone uh, so quickly and yet so so tediously slowly but we're delighted to be here this evening um, and we have two brilliant speakers for you um, lined up so we have uh, two very exciting presentations today um, from our very own PhD candidates in the School of English, Dervila Houston and Hannah Matthews, and I'll introduce them both properly in just one moment. But before we get to that, uh, we have a bit of housekeeping things to do. So due to this nature, uh, due to the nature of this series um, is a sort of place for sharing works in progress. Um, we were really excited to be able to welcome PhD candidates to present their ongoing research and also some diversions from their main doctoral research. Um, and the seminar series has been a really, really productive space so far in the year for, um, you know, a, a convivial and friendly way to share um, everything that we're researching. So uh, we've been really delighted to be able to host it this year. And we're delighted that Trinity Longroom Hub has hosted us and helped us with all the technical side of things. Um, so if you do tweet um, as we go along through the presentation, feel free to tag us. You can tag at TLR Hub um, and at TCD English and at Seminars TCD 2020. And you can also tag Dervila um, on Twitter at DSM underscore Houston. Um, so this talk will be recorded and we're hoping to be able to podcast it afterwards so it will be available to listen back to. Um, if there are any technical issues during the seminar, we'll attempt to fix them as quickly as possible. Fingers crossed there won't be, um, but we just ask for your patience and understanding if there are. Um, and without further ado, um, I'll introduce our speakers. So Dervla and Hannah will both be speaking for 20 minutes each and we'll then have a Q&A at the end. So if you do have questions, feel free to type them into the Q&A box as we go along and I'll get through as many of them as we can at the end. Um, so first up today, we have Dervila, who is a PhD candidate in Trinity College Dublin School of English. And her research is concerned with domestic spaces in contemporary women's fiction since 1980, and is funded by the Pollard Scholarship. So she is a co-founder of the Contemporary Irish Literature Research Network, CIL, and a co-editor of the blog there, Spit the Pips. And Dervila also recently co-edited a special issue of Alluvium on 21st century Irish women's writing. Um, today, she will be speaking about the neoliberal university in Nicole Flattery's short story, Abortion, A Love Story. Um, and then next up, we have Hannah, who is a first year PhD candidate also in the School of English. And her topic of research looks at Cold War Western dystopias. Uh, the title of her talk today is Someone Started the Fire, Probing the Cold War Maladies by John Wyndham. Um, and she'll be presenting um, on, on that English writer and some of his works, his many preoccupations and the prescient nature of his ideas. So we're really excited to hear from both Dervila and Hannah today. Um, and without further ado, I'd like to pass over to Dervila to get things started. That's great. Thank you so much, uh, Orla, for that lovely introduction. I'm just gonna share my um, PowerPoint with you guys now, just hold on a sec. 
Okay, so my paper today um, on the neoliberal university in co-flarity short story, abortion and love story is a bit of a departure from my usual research. So my PhD research, um, which all going well, I'll hopefully be finishing up at the end of August, um, focuses on domestic spaces in contemporary women's fiction. So today, instead of focusing on the private space of the home, I'll be talking about um, a public or institutional space, that of the university. And so the following ideas emerge out of thinking about the role um, of the university within recent examples of Irish women's fiction about Flattery and her contemporaries and why the university appears to be a recurring setting um, in their fiction. Because my usual research is broadly focused on the interrelation between built space and individuals, this paper also comes about from thinking about the university in specifically spatial terms. So it's architecture and organisation, the university is both institution and community of people, centering around ideas of knowledge um, production and ideas. Um, and this, of course, led to thinking about how, you know, when we talk about the nature of the university or universities in contemporary Ireland, we're also necessarily um, engaging with discourses of neoliberalism, um, you know, ideas of meritocracy, marketization, mobility, employability, and so on. So this paper is very much um, a work in progress and is still in its early stages. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do really with any of these ideas. Um, but I'm just, I suppose, using Flattery short story um, as a way to unpack some quite embryonic ideas about the concept of the university, um, particularly within um, recent Irish women's fiction. So I'm very happy to receive feedback um, on this paper today. So before I get into my analysis of Flaherty's short story, um, I just want to take some very brief time to discuss what I mean by the neoliberal university. Um, and I'm aware that neoliberalism as a sort of category is considered somewhat contentious or, or a baggy term, uh, perhaps particularly when it comes to education. Um, so to sort of, for the purposes of keeping things simple today, um, I'm using quite a broad definition uh, here from Stephen Ball, um, where he sort of defines neoliberalization of education as, quote, the general reworking of the relationship of education in fundamental and intimate ways to the needs of the economy. That is the economization of education in a variety of forms. So since the 1960s, as Aisha Iman and Burpee Timonen have noted, higher education in Ireland has, quote, adopted a human capital perspective with an emphasis on education as a conduit for economic growth and productivity, end quote. Um, and this link has certainly intensified in, in recent decades, particularly in the aftermath of the 2007 um, global financial crash, um, when state funding um, for higher education in Ireland was drastically cut, and um, we had the reintroduction of um, registration fees, or, or what are sometimes called student contribution fees, um, which have risen um, for undergraduate courses. I'm mainly talking about the university as an undergraduate space here um, in, in sort of the last decade. So in tandem with this, um, a university degree is marketized by universities and understood by individuals as a means of securing a better future, primarily through um, increased employability. So how does all of this pertain to Flattery's short story? So the story, uh, the centerpiece of her 2019 debut collection, Show Them a Good Time, concerns two students at an elite college, Natasha and Lucy, who are brought together through a relationship with the lecturer, Professor Carr, 
and go on to form a friendship and artistic partnership as they produce and perform a play, The Abortion, A Love Story of the Title. So throughout the story, neoliberal ideology regarding higher education infiltrates the thoughts and desires of Flattery's main characters, as we can see here. So Natasha um, wasn't fully sure how she ended up in the college. She remembered reading through the college brochures and picking the place with the oldest, leafiest trees, the highest buildings. This is where she would get the most value for money, she decided. So Natasha's understanding of a university degree as value for money is characteristic of the economization of education which Ball articulates. Similarly, an invocation of social mobility or rising above recurs throughout abortion love story. In many ways, this rising above aligns flattery story with other fictional narratives uh, with the university setting. As Mary Eagleton puts forward in her 2018 study of education and social mobility in British women's writing of the 20th and 21st centuries, the university is often conceived as a space of escaping one's origins, as quote, the location for transition, end quote. However, particularly in 21st century texts, Eagleton argues, the concept of upward mobility through a university education becomes increasingly problematized uh, by the, uh, an awareness um, by characters of the limits of a neoliberal ideology um, and its focus on the agency of the individual. So I've chosen Flattery's story specifically because of the way she constructs the space of the university as one imbued with various neoliberal discourses. Within Abortion Love Story, the concept of the neoliberal university as a space which enables students to rise above their originating social circumstances, um, mainly through knowledge acquisition, understood as the key value of employability, is subverted through the story's depiction of the university as an overwhelmingly circumscribing space on an architectural and ideological level, particularly for its female students. So the elite college in question <laughs> is one that we, an institution we may all be familiar with. Um, so although it's never officially named, um, a Trinity setting is implied in the story. So without doing too biographical of a reading, which I'm, I'm not sure is the best route to go down, um, Flaherty herself is a graduate um, of Trinity, of Trinity having undertaken um, a BA in drama and film studies and an MPhil in creative writing. So it may not be surprising that Trinity is the, um, I suppose, the, the influence for abortion and love story. Um, but beyond that sort of speculation, spatial descriptions of the college strongly suggest Trinity as the elite college of the story. For example, the benches and oak trees of Front Square mentioned, and the campus is, quote, separated from the outside world by a large by large and forbidding gates. So references are also made to buildings which may be comparable to Trinity's own architecture, namely the computer house, um, a glass extension at the back of the library, which may well be the PC lab in Kinsale Hall, the unemployment building located just outside the gates of the college campus, which evokes Oshin House, which is a now demolished building, a former Department of Social Protection building, uh, which is now being um, redeveloped into student accommodation um, and a student theatre situation on campus, which we may assume is the Samuel Beckett Theatre. So I want to focus now on these three specific spaces, the computer house, the unemployment building and the student theatre, and how these spaces are imbued with discourses of neoliberal ideology as they pertain to a university education. 
So descriptions of the college in abortion love story routinely emphasize its inhibiting nature. Both Lucy and Natasha, and Natasha respectively, characterize the campus as a gated community, a term itself imbued with privilege. A discourse of imprisonment presides in the text. The story begins with Natasha attending a meeting in Professor Carr's office, and she notes the quote, walls and walls of books that imprisoned the professor. While many of the college spaces are circumscribing in many ways, it is the computer house which perhaps symbolizes most pointedly Natasha's feelings of imprisonment and stasis. Natasha explains that the computer house itself is a source of her academic problems. The computer house is described as a glass building attached to the library. And in the last year, it had become a symbol to Natasha of the college regime. The structure was a mystery to her. So the computer house is a space of productivity and an achievement for other students and their quote, loud typing, but not for Natasha who routinely finds herself outside looking in. Often she imagined herself walking into the computer house, opening a document, putting words on that document, deliberate incisive words about the subject she was studying. With the best intentions, she stood outside and thought about going inside. Usually she was running away before she even noticed she was running away. Natasha's fear of the computer house lies in her experience of the space as one of surveillance. As one day in the computer house, she receives an anonymous email narrating the events of her home life, quote, written like the darkest play, end quote. Indeed, such surveillance is foregrounded through the materiality of the computer house. It is a glass enclosure in which students can be seen by others as they perform their academic work. The presence as well of computers suggests another layer um, of sort of surveillance and, and discipline as they are not only a means for academic work, but also a form of surveillance technology. Plus there is something implicitly threatening and rather dystopian about the computer house with its quote, irritating flickering computers, end quote. Is ostensibly a space in which academic work can be undertaken so that students can complete their degrees. Yet for Natasha and relatedly Lucy, um, the computer house is neither a space of opportunity nor work, so it can't be a space of rising above, but rather another form of imprisonment. So other threats are inscribed within the space of the elite college, the primary one being the presence of the unemployment building symbolically located outside the gates of the college. As Natasha notes, the unemployment building hung like a threat over the final year student body. They had heard various things, that it was a place where men smoked openly and hacked into their elbows, where paint peeled from the walls as if trying to escape, where their immune systems would be lowered and threatened by ancient illnesses. So the threat of the building right outside the, the gates of the college campus is clearly an incentive for the students to succeed academically within the story. So to progress from the elite college to the employment building, from a space of meritocracy and hard work to a space of reliance on the state, um, is to fail a set of neoliberal values regarding a university education as a singular route to employability. And Natasha's unsatisfactory academic performance puts her on track to the employment building. She's recognized by her fellow students as quote, clearly marked while they ready themselves to leave for, quote, the outside world with confidence, heading for financial institutions, their family businesses. So we see here how sort of a language of, of finance of economy um, is, is being kind of underwritten constantly in the story. 
So Natasha's stated trajectory towards the unemployment building is due not only to her academic failures, but as, as is suggested throughout the story, is a product or endpoint of her upbringing. While other students have certain economic advantages because of their family backgrounds, Natasha has none. The inescapable nature of one's background, the inability to rise above one's circumstances, is constantly foregrounded in Flattery's story. As Natasha notes, she wasn't raised with ideas, and this puts her inherently at odds with the space which is concerned almost, you know, totally with ideas, 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 as Flattery writes. Indeed, her issue seems to be that she cannot let her childhood experiences go, bringing them with her into the space of the elite college. So she was sick of the cleanliness of the college, the neat angles, the smooth walls of the buildings, the gate slammed shut. She saw the professor's pristine bedroom as an extension of the college. She was sick of reason and order. She wanted filth and chaos. She thought of the dim basement bar her mother used to bring to her as a child and how the college was the same really, no better, no more worthy. So the university as a space to escape one's origins and into a better life, as per Eagleton, is repeatedly challenged in Flattery's text. Natasha and Lucy cannot escape their origins within the space of the university for various reasons. While Natasha cannot escape her childhood, Lucy deliberately forgets her origins. So Lucy had no idea where she came from. She remembered getting the bus to college and how, as they moved from countryside to the city, the music on the radio became gentler, more refined. When she disembarked, she swore to never get another bus for the rest of her life. Lucy is by many means a more successful student than Natasha. With her ability to obfuscate her experiences and compartmentalize, she is, quote, the most malleable student. Flattery's narrative playfully foregrounds the performative nature of Lucy's academic success throughout, as she performs expertly and she is, quote, too busy to, uh, learning lines to think. Um, when she accidentally abandons this performance, shouting, quote, Jesus Christ, let me out of here during a tutorial, she recovers by attributing the outburst to a quote from a Beckett play. Lucy's performance of successful upward mobility through education and a disinheritance of her past is shown, however, to have as much of a damaging effect on her psyche as Natasha's fear and stasis. For Natasha, rising above is paralyzing. For Lucy, it causes a disconnection from the self. Both Natasha and Lucy have absorbed discourses of social mobility, as well as the belief that a university education will unproblematically grant this. However, their shared experience of stasis and a lack of agency over their own lives, particularly through the cannibalization of their respective experiences of abortion by other people, ultimately undermines these beliefs. Flattery's story, I would argue, questions the rhetoric of rising above, since upward mobility in abortion and love story only leads to spaces and experiences which continue to imprison and confine. However, there is also arguably um, kind of symbolized by the space of the student theater, uh, an opportunity for potential freedom. So the student theater is a space in which Natasha, Natasha and Lucy are connected through the creative act of writing and performing their two woman play. As such, against the confining space of the computer house and the unemployment building and what they symbolize, the student theatre is a small pocket of freedom. The staging of abortion love story in the student theatre is a conditional occupation of a space of artistic agency. And despite the provisional nature of the play, so Lucy and Natasha are only allowed to perform this play for one night only, 
Um, it's significant that they occupy a space within a larger institution, which throughout the narrative has failed to grant them agency. During the play, which is disjointed and surreal, Lucy and Natasha play out discourses of, neoliberalized, of a neoliberalized education system. At one point, Lucy plays a nun informing her student Natasha about what to expect at the elite university she has gotten into. In this, Natasha and Lucy satirize the trope of education as a form of upward mobility, as Lucy is nun asks Natasha's pupil, quote, do you promise to leave this place and never look back? Do you promise to rise to moderate heights with a quiet and civilized personality, end quote, before throwing a bucket of ice water and paper money over her. So Natasha and Lucy as co-creators askew the fantasy of upward mobility with the performance of their play. As they note, they can only perform the play because they don't have, quote, reputations to risk, end quote. The play is envisioned as both of them, as a place that was lawless. And so within the broader spatial configurations of the story in which anything associated with the college seems to be a space of imprisonment and confinement, the play therefore acts, becomes a sort of space in and of itself um, of freedom, or at least provisional escape from these imprisoning values of neoliberalism. So if there is a space of freedom to be found in abortion love story, it is constructed through an act of, collect of collective uh, creation. As Lucy remarks, if you wanted a place that was lawless, you had to invent it yourself. However, flattery story, lest we start getting too positive here, uh, defers any kind of fixed meaning or conclusion to this suggestion that freedom can be achieved through art, specifically writing and performance. The story concludes with stage directions. The light eventually fades on both girls, silence, blackout, curtain falls. So instead of a clear cut ending in which Natasha and Lucy triumph and are rewarded by the college for their talent. Flattery instead gives, leaves us with an ambivalent sense um, of the, I suppose, potentiality of art creation or expression um, as a sort of provisional space within the neoliberal university. So to bring things to some sort of conclusion here. Um, so as I mentioned at the beginning of my paper, there's very much a work in progress and the larger purpose of these ideas are still quite um, unclear to me. I will probably have to remain so until I finish my um, PhD, which is obviously <laughs> an important thing to do. Um, however, I do think that there should be some sort of further exploration of the university in contemporary Irish women's writing um, as, you know, Flashy's story, I think, um, evidences. Um, there is significant work done, done on campus literature uh, or the university novel in kind of British and American context. Um, and I think something like Eagleton's work um, on the specifically gendered experience of higher education in literary narratives uh, is a useful case study that could be extended to um, a study of Irish women's writing. So Flattery's short story is just one example, although perhaps one of the most interesting, both formally um, and tonally, of recent fiction by Irish women writers, in which the university, and more often than not Trinity, um, is a central space within these contemporary um, coming-of-age narratives, um, which I think is notable enough to warrant uh, further investigation. Um, and I'm looking forward to hear, hearing what people think um, in the Q&A. So, thank you. Thanks so much, Dervla. That was really fascinating. Um, and as someone who's looking at Nicole Flattery um, as part of my, my doctoral research, I'm, I'm so interested to hear um, your analysis of, of the how the university 
plays a role in in that short story, which is, as you sort of mentioned, like quite a bizarre short story and there's so much going on. Um, so thank you so much for that. Um, and also just to apologize, I got Dervila's funding wrong. <laughs> I'm operating on very little COVID sleep. So Dervila's research is actually funded by the Pyle postgraduate bursary, just to correct that. Um, but yeah, now I want to pass over to Hannah, um, if Hannah's there. Um, and I'll share my screen so that um, you can go through your PowerPoint, Hannah. Thank you so much, Rosa. Um, oh, okay, so uh, hi everyone. Um, for the seminar today, I will be presenting a work in progress and my presentation is titled, Someone Started the Fire, Probing the Cold War Maladies via John Wyndham. Um, slide two, please. Um, it's been more than a century since the advent of the modern dystopian fiction, which to a great extent often traces literary lineage to science fiction by H.G. Wells, as it ushered the new era marked by specters of modernity. Since then, there have been a slew of classical dystopian fictions by Yevgeny Zamutin, Aldous Huxley, Catherine Birdkin, George Orwell, Neville Shute, William Golding, to name a few. The major raison d'etre for the genre has often been transitions, upheavals, and transformations taking place within the political and social spheres of a nation, a trait alive and well even today around the globe. Dystopian fiction is in simple terms a caveat that discourses upon the many anomalies, machiavellian facets of the society. Yet, despite persisting, dystopian fiction too have undergone, undergone marked transformations with each era producing its own distinct type. Today, I'll be focusing on one particular Cold War dystopian novelist, and that is John Wyndham, Parks, Lucas, Bain and Harris, or also widely and easily known as John Wyndham, the pseudonym under which the English writer wrote nine of his major dystopian and science fiction novels, two of which were published posthumously. Wyndham wrote on the cusp of the Cold War period when a lot happened. And if you, so it's the Cold War, right? And um, people might think that, okay, there wasn't a third world war that took place, but um, a lot actually happened in terms of uh, innovations and developments and a race to space and taking over land and seas. But at the same time, everything happened except a war. So he was writing at the precipice of this period. And when there seemed to be little hope to achieve a modus vivendi between the East and the West. Slide three, please. So some of the major issues, um, a background would be a thing that I would like to first talk about. Um, I mentioned the two world wars, um, not just the second world war because um, Wyndham was without a doubt affected by both of these great wars uh, because he was someone who witnessed both of them in his lifetime. Once at the impressionable age of 11, when he was plagued by the awareness as his biographer writes, when he sees 200 boys and their memorial in his school. And he sort of assumes that it's a similar fate that awaits him. And the second war was witnessed when he was in his prime. So one can actually trace to 
what great and even unaccountable extent these might have impacted Wyndham's perception. Then you have the economic depression. And um, of course, the site of it was the United States, but its reverberations were also felt in Britain, where you know there was great amount of uncertainty, lack of stability, um, lack of jobs, uh, food shortages, to name some of the major issues. So there was gen just this general precarity in terms of the epoch. Um, the empire was losing its grip over its colonies around the globe and the sun was finally setting down and colonies were becoming independent and um, Britain was um, out of resources having fought in these two wars to uh, further keep up troops in major frontline areas. And then you have, again, connected with the idea of the empire, um, some of one of his major um, preoccupations is looking at the idea of colonization. So this is a twofold um, thing, such as uh, a colonization in terms of aliens invading the earth, right? And the second one is when, which we'll also look at in when we uh, discuss the Triffids, is the internal colonization, wherein um, the monster, the alien entity is relegated to the background when it's the humans who sort of come to, you know, um, invade each other's spaces and take over each other's lives. And then, of course, you had the uh, ubiquity of misinformation because um, it was simply hard to discern facts from propaganda because um, everything was under government control all communications, radio, newspaper, everything was. Um, slide four, please. Um, and as you will see, it was also the era wherein uh, a lot of armaments were being tested, right? There was a pro proliferation of nuclear and atomic uh, testings. And um, Wyndham was a writer who was very prophetic in terms of just thinking about the adverse effects these testings had on environment, on people. Um, there were bioweapons being carried out by um, nations, United States, Britain, and um, these at the time weren't really something that people paid much attention to, but of course now it's something that we pay keen um, attention to. Um, the next slide, please. Wyndham was actively writing what has now been described by critics like Lyman Dar Sargent and Tom Moylan as critical dystopias, which are a specific category in which traditional dystopian idea of an anti-utopian ending is done away with for a more hopeful open ending with traces of utopian instinct. Wyndham wrote these critical dystopias in which he deftly united topics of national policies nuclear testings and armament, biological warfare, major preoccupations and innovations of the epoch. These were, in a nutshell, believable, rational fantasies. The dystopias of the 20th century have been gleaned from histories, human calamities, and nuclear policies of the catastrophic century to a great extent. Wyndham probed the civilization's hamartia, particularly as he wrote the novels, in the emerging Cold War era, and which proves to be a clear mimesis of the second half of the 20th century world. 
He prominently probed the schisms between the human and the non-human, natural versus unnatural, of hybridity and mutation, the capitalist world versus the Soviet-lived communism, the power politics that was rampant. He commented upon um, issues like religiosity and called it as the Achilles heel of humanity. Writing about these very obvious anxieties of the age wasn't actually a new radical thing because a lot of the other writers were existing during the same period and similar works being, were being produced. But his meteor is something that um, concretizes, brings all these things into one form and is highlighted most effectively when he talks about the environment and its slow degradation resulting from the overarching disposition of mankind. What Wyndham accomplishes as a result is a unique blend of dystopias, one where he interrogates the established order of things and presents a critique of the system while discoursing upon the extensive surveillance state. The fact that his novels are so well established in the society he was best aware of makes the terror even more plausible. So I will walk you through uh, each of his dystopian texts, not each because uh, we'll be running short of time, but uh, I'll be taking up four major uh, works of his and focusing largely on um, the invasions, the internal strife, and the subsequent impact on climate change that is very prescient. So the first work that I'll be taking up is The Day of the Triffids, a very vi widely read uh, Wyndham novel. Um, it was published in 1951 at the dawn of the new atomic era. The novel lies in the frontier of an environmental dystopia with shades of ecological and socio-political anxiety. Acting as a cautionary tale, the novel captures the effects and impacts of the Second World War and the spectral presence of the Cold War period. Wyndham, in his own lifetime, finding himself at the center of the chaos of the World War, the dismantling empire, witnessed the social order breaking down and vanishing, an idea extensively probed in the novel. The novel is set in London at the crux of um, the period. And the matter at hand is that there's a carnivorous plant called Triffid, which have taken over the city. And uh, it's largely due to the constant east-west tension that has which has probably resulted in uh, this particular plant being released into the public and which causes fatal havoc. Another significant point that Wyndham inadvertently highlights is that these organisms aren't naturally occurring and are possibly the result of unnatural scientific excesses and interferences. He was skeptical about the great marvels of scientific developments and was far more politically aware than ever before. Supplementing this is a visual incapacitating meteor shower that renders the majority of the population blind. Ultimately, the leader of the new society is traced in the figure of Beadley, who now hopes to liberate the old world of its traditions and conventions and transform England of her old ways and constraints, restructuring the society on new ideas of morality and order hearkening at the once imperial nation as its grips around the colonies were slackening. The Cold War ties are further strengthened with the insinuation that the meteor flashes and plague 
might have been a direct consequence of the race for weaponization. The Day of the Triffids finds obvious palimpsest ties to an earlier short story by Wyndham titled The Puffball Menace, which was, which is, as his biographer Amy Binns writes, and I quote, was one of the first depictions of biological warfare, close quotes. The idea of usurpation by these carnivorous plants might be a subtle hint at the specters of the empire's enterprise and the impact of the world war. Some critics have drawn allusion to the plant attack as that of being a reverse colonization, as Jerry Mata clearly states in his article. I feel that it isn't as simplistic as that, because the pervading sense of darkness of the society, both actually and metaphorically, allude to a more ruthless dynamic, one that is reminiscent of a man-eat man world, where all morality and humanness dissipates. Hence, one could say that it's more of an internal colonization taking place amidst men of the same society and where in an Orwellian sense, some individuals are more important than the others. In such a scenario, the presence of the Triffid is relegated to the background and where the biopolitics amongst men take center, who forgo all morality and ethics as a means to preserve the human race, and which may also connote to the larger discourse on eugenics, which was popular in the 19th as well as the 20th century. This enables Biobar to work in more selective manner to eliminate atypical individuals. The center of the Anthropocene does not hold. It simply boils down to asking fundamental questions. What does it mean to be human? And as Wyndham rightly asks in the novel, who is to judge who are the more brutal? Close quotes. The next slide, please. Reading The Kraken Awakes uh, made me realize that Wyndham reinforces the idea of social breakdown, largely propelled by anthropocentric activities, which is so blatant and banal, yet terrifying, and one that lies at the core of his literary values, that man is essentially man's worst nemesis. The story, in a nutshell, traces the inexplicable occurrence of fireballs streaking the night sky and diffusing to an unknown dormant uh, place in the deepest parts of the ocean. Gradually, the First World War nations and their power politics and supremacy are challenged as their defenses are attacked by these alien entities that have emerged, self-established, and are thriving in these oceans. The global economy is brought to a standstill, Subsequently, there is a meteoric change, unintended, in the global climate, where the sea levels begin to surge as polar ice caps melt, instigated by these aliens. But there is no return to earlier times as the environment undergoes an irreversible alteration. The world seems to be fighting something neither approachable nor fully comprehensible, as Wyndham writes. The sentiments could well be conveyed for the Cold War uncertainties. The novel is symbolic of the current climate in which it was written. The Kraken, that's the alien entity, uh, notwithstanding their presence in the novel, can also symbolize man's, or, or particularly speaking, humanity's manifested consciousness, symbolic of the extent to which man can jeopardize so as to protect himself. Another significant point Wyndham discourses on is related to how geopolitics works in shrewd ways, such as carrying out tests in smaller nations or how 
questionably calamities were, and I quote, extravagances divinely directed to occur in the more exotic and less sensible parts of the earth, close quotes. This appears to have a real life counter in the many tests carried out in Maralinga in Australia, making these outbacks and lands often occupied by natives, essentially guinea pigs at the hands of the more powerful nations, making vulnerable population mere cogs to disregard and dehumanize them. A tale as old as time, yet seen with even more clarity in the modern era. The arbitrariness of who gets to live and who is forced to perish is profoundly touched upon by Wyndham, an idea that also touches upon issues of class, citizenship, and appears very topical. All in all, Wyndham balances the narrative by situating it at an equidistance from both the speculative vis-a-vis -vis the extravagantly imaginative part of it and the prescience of the thought. The next slide, please. The Chrysalis um, is the next novel that I'll be uh, discussing. And um, in both the Chrysalis as well as the fourth novel, the uh, that's Chalky, um, the marginalized are not nobody else but the children in the society who are simply othered on account of their biological discrepancy and um, additional evolutionary traits and their sort of unconnectedness to their families. So the chrysalids, which was published in 1955, um, was one of the first, again, according to Amy Bins, um, the biographer, one of the first post-nuclear dystopias. And it is set in a post-nuclear world, specifically in an agrarian community called Vaknuk in Labrador, uh, which is a Christian theocratic society located in present-day Canada, where in the social order of things, all aberrations and mutations are considered and uh, are simply you know, um, demarcated as anomalies. They are not considered to be natural at all, um, be it in terms of humans or uh, flora or fauna, animals and plants, vegetables. And so when a group of children with psychic abilities emerged, emerge amidst the pure race, it is seen as a direct threat to mankind. The protagonist David Storm and his psychic contemporaries are aware of their aberration and are made aware of their unnaturalness, a defilement of the pure race. Much of what the theocratic community does is to establish strict cleansing programs to justify social Darwinism. The natural inhabitants assign an inspector to evaluate the authenticity of the new life and in essence, and I quote, authorize a relation only through abstract universality of the disease, close quotes, which simply means any kind of deviation that gets observed, they are simply chucked out uh, into the liminal sp spaces or the fringes. Um, in a lot obvious ways, um, the novel uh, sort of prefigures Margaret Atwood's The and hurricanes. The novel yet again deals with themes of uh, themes that were synonymous with Wyndham uh, across his work uh, of evolution, of evolving beyond what nature accords, of collective and individual existences. 
specific to the chrysalids is the recreation of the post-nuclear Eden on Earth, based largely off of the American Puritanism. The novel, keeping yet again with the unity of Wyndham's style, ends with the realization of a new order of society where the think-togethers aren't prosecuted. The next slide, please. Um, I shall be concluding my talk with Chalky, which was Wyndham's uh, final and most um, autobiographical work. Um, it's a novel where I've left sort of the discussion open as I'm still in the process of deciphering my ideas and um, themes that sort of would unite them more um, profoundly. And, um, and I will be gathering as a result over the course of the period, more nuanced understanding of it. And I would very much like for your feedbacks and any sort of supplementary suggestions that you might think uh, would be helpful to me. So Chalky was published in the year 1968 and uh, the novel focuses on Matthew Gore, the adopted son of David and Mary Gore, who finds himself in a constant mental borderline psychical dialogue with and the presence of an alien named Chucky, a scout who is trying to uh, understand the viability of alien life on Earth, of the many follies of terrestrial existence, and who through this voice inside um, Matthew Gore's head comes to perform extraordinary feats and is recognized as a gifted maverick, largely a fusion of alien invasion and ecological science fiction the end product is one that comments upon climate change and positive utility of resources, which could be a possible new thought or could maybe bring about a catastrophic conclusion. One that approaches us to decide between ethical and political motivations. Unsurprisingly enough, here too, the lack of knowledge of one's biological background as a possible means to deduce their innate propensity is highlighted. And I quote, Still, one cannot be too watchful. After all, it's not as if we knew a great deal about Sorry guys, I'm not sure if we've just lost Hannah there. Hannah, are you still yeah, there? Yeah, I Hannah am. mentioned her internet I, I, might be a bit ropey. Um, you are, sorry. Sorry, go ahead there. Where, uh, could you, could anyone please let me know where I left off so that... I think you were just, you were just wrapping up, Hannah. Sorry, I'm not, I'm okay. not exactly sure. Uh, yeah, Orla, yeah. could you please uh, switch over to the next uh, slide? And the final one. Sorry, I am now also having technical difficulties. Bear with me. Uh, so, um, as a result, uh, 
now that I've concluded uh, my discussion on the four novels that I was talking about. Um, with that, I would like to simply uh, say that Wyndham, as he wrote all his nine works, um, um, which were largely anthropocentric texts, there's an understanding that we are faced with that humankind wields considerable power over the environment, the most by any organism, whilst also at the same time humbling back the idea home that our power, our knowledge is as limited as the opportunities and resources that we deplete. The more so, we are not unsusceptible to the destructions we bring about. Notwithstanding his Vatic approach, Wyndham significantly discourses on these era-defining issues while questioning the notions of authority, social and environmental justice, and governance. He probes the seemingly hopeless way of the world where none can be trusted, where a nation's supremacy often overshadows the real cost of war. It makes one reevaluate the uh, who the real predator actually might be. Thank you. Thank you so much, Orla. Thank you so much, Hannah. Um, that was fascinating. And apologies for the brief um, technical glitches there. But yeah, dystopian fiction and Cold War fiction is something I know very, very little about. So it was absolutely fascinating uh, to hear that presentation. Thank you, Hannah. Um, and thank you to both of our speakers. Um, I'm sure we have loads of questions um, coming into the Q&A. Um, but if I may, I might just start with one of my own questions. I have one for both Hannah and Dervila. Um, so I suppose, um, starting Dervila with you, um, I, I'm really struck by, um, I suppose, the sort of where you're painting um, this image of, of the story and drawing out all of these almost tensions or contradictions between being surveyed and this idea of being constantly productive um, that you highlight so brilliantly in terms of like a neoliberal, edu neoliberal education and then how that might be subverted by performance and by making yourself public. Um, but I'm wondering whether that embodied aspect of performance and particularly with the abortion, that's obviously a bit of a centerpiece of the story. Like, does that maybe serve to reinforce that binary between, you know, sort of women and men, body and mind, particularly because a lot of the educational gatekeepers in the story are men like Professor Carr. So I guess what I'm saying is, does it does it sort of, does the story speak to that binary um, or does flattery subvert that um, through the sort of gender and body dynamics? Well, I, okay, I'll, I'll answer that now. Okay, <laughs> that's such a good question. Um, um, and probably one that I can't really adequately answer yet. I think, yeah, there like, as you point out, like there is such an, there are multiple tensions going on in the text between, um, you know, bodies and space, the ideas of, yeah, surveillance and performance and which one sort of, um, I suppose, is more enjoyable, particularly for women, you know, who, who feel as if their bodies are both surveyed constantly and also, um, I, I guess, the performative nature of, of femininity as well. Um, but yeah, and that's a really good point that I didn't really think of or even have really time to um, talk about in the in the paper at all about that kind of gendered binary um, between the the male and female characters. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know whether 
Flaherty's text um, kind of supports that or, or troubles it at all. And I'm not sure if that's because it, it doesn't do that or because I haven't thought about it enough. Uh, because I suppose Flaherty, as you know, is like quite a tricky writer to pin down. And um, even though I really enjoy her, her writing, um, she can be quite frustrating to analyze. So essentially what I'm saying here is, I don't know, but that's a really good point and I'll, I'll definitely think think more about it. No, I mean, it's an unfair question um, because I also find flattery fascinating, but really, really, yeah, just difficult to pin down, which is part of the joy of her writing, I suppose, but also makes it difficult when you're trying to attempt a close analysis. Um, but thank you for that. And Hannah, um, for you, and as I say, I really don't know much about this sort of, um, you know, era or genre or type of literature. Um, but I'm just struck by how sort of prescient it seems that, you know, you're talking about um, Wyndham as, as sort of, a, you know, a writer who speaks to man as being man's own worst enemy and about social breakdown due to sort of our anthropocentric um, activities. And I suppose I'm wondering if there a sense of blame um, you know, or judgment in his writing that he singles out one social group and calls on them to do better. Um, like, is this, are these cautionary novels? And I know that you mentioned he was interested in politics and governance and authority and sort of troubling and um, maybe what we expect of those. So I'm wondering, is, is it sort of um, judgment free and, and more of a description or do you think there is a sense of blame in the work? Um, so having read uh, the text, um, of course, he's prescient, um, unlike he's prescient. Um, and um, so, for instance, there's a novel by him called The Outward, Age, uh, Outward Urge. And uh, in that, he talks about um, going into space and, you know, landing on the moon almost 10 years before it actually happened. So in terms of that, he was much ahead of his um, times. Um, as for the judgment, I would say I'm still at a very nascent stage, but I would think yes, because he was someone who was very directly affected by the war. And um, he had his opinions and he went to war. He, he was, a um, he, I think he was good with the furniture. So he would help set up beds or something. I read it in the biography. But um, he's someone who's been up close and very personal with these uh, two ra rather great events and subsequently with the Cold War period. So I'm, I'm still not 100% sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that there is a good amount of uh, judgment that he sort of, you know, um, includes in almost all of his texts. And it's not free of his uh, opinions. That's great. Thanks so much, Hannah. And I suppose I have another question that maybe um, follows on a bit from that, um, from, from Bernice Murphy here in the Q&A. And she says, um, Hannah, Wyndham is such a fascinating writer with many themes, which, as you note, remain very relevant today. Why do you think he has thus far been relatively neglected within academia? Uh, thank you for the uh, question, Professor Murphy. Um, maybe so that I could research upon it. <laughs> But um, uh, I, I have a feeling that um, dystopian genre to a great extent um, has, has been this um, 
array of classical dystopias. You have um, the prominent ones, or Orwell and Huxley, and um, you have even C.S. Lewis and Nabokov. But Orwell, um, sorry, Wyndham to a great extent, he sort of, there's a good amount of hope at the end of most of his works. And um, in that sense, it sort of maybe um, ends up setting him apart from the more classical oriented writers. But um, yeah, so that I could also research upon him. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate the honest answer there. <laughs> um, thanks so much, Hannah. Um, I have a question here um, for Dervila uh, from Liam Harrison. Um, and he says, great paper, Dervila. I was wondering if you could say some more about the strange structure of abortion, a love story. It's kind of too long for a short story and too short for a novella. Um, and it also seems to comment on its own unwieldiness. Um, and Liam refers to the quote that you cited, uh, the structure was a mystery to her. Um, and again, in the last spoken lines, I'm not sure. I don't know if I get it. Um, and I, Liam's sort of asking, do you think this sort of weird experimental form is particularly suited to Irish campus literature? Um, so if you will. Oh, great. That's, um, yeah, really good question. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so the, the story, um, and again, this reveal, like, I mean, this paper reveals how, like, I'm just not, um, you know, a formalist or that, in, like, pay that much attention to form, but it does have quite an interesting um, structure, as Liam points out, in that it's sort of a triptych, I suppose, um, which uh, culminates with, um, I guess, like, the play itself as it is performed. Um, so, yeah, it is quite interesting and it is quite long. I think it's the longest um, story in, in the collection by quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe um, in terms of like capturing a sense of the contemporary like Irish university campus, um, maybe it does capture it very well through its structure. If we think of like, I suppose, if we're using like contemporary university and neoliberal university as sort of analogues, um, of one another and perhaps like the I guess diffuse nature of neoliberalism into the university campus like what you know David Harvey um, calls like the pervasiveness of neoliberal ideology maybe then does kind of blur boundaries of form boundaries of like what we understand a short story particularly in the Irish tradition to do um, yeah that was I hope answers them some of Dean's question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks so much for that. I think we have time for a couple more quick questions just um, because of our, our tech snaffle um, earlier, but I have one for Hannah um, and another for Dervla um, before we wrap up. So um, Hannah, um, I have one here from Janice um, for you, and she just wants to know, can you comment more on the women characters um, in Wyndham's work and how do they, how do women fit into his dystopias. Um, and before you answer that, I might just um, read Alexander Jones's question for Dervila so you can be mulling it over. Um, and he thanks you both for two fascinating papers and asks Dervila, do you think Trinity as a place institution slash institution offers writers a particularly effective space um, for, for writers of campus literature, whether they name Trinity or not? Um, is its popularity uh, in campus lit purely down to its recognizability or are there other aspects of the university that it coheres to better than other institutions? 
Um, so Hannah, I might go to you first, if that's okay. Um, so thank you for the question, Janice. Um, um, women characters in Wyndham uh, figure very prominently, um, almost in most of the novels you would see one um, prominent uh, female character alongside um, the man, you know, leading the way. But um, one of the things that um, will I will talk about is that um, he tends to, in some novels, give them agency. Whereas in some novels, such as, uh, for instance, I would take uh, the case of um, Lycan. So in that novel, uh, the central protagonist is given a lot of agency and uh, he goes on to discourse upon um, how the biopolitics of gender even, as well as of other things besides that. But at the same time, you have novels like Chalky, wherein he ends up um, describing the female characters as um, not so, you know, um, prominently in terms of how they are um, not as, you know, enthusiastic about certain things or so on and so forth. And that to a great extent, I have a feeling stems from his own personal life because he was a writer who incorporated to such a great extent of his personal uh, experiences in his novels. So, um, you know, there are people, specifically the biographer, Amy Benz, she comments upon the fact that, you know, the fact that his own mother wasn't as, you know, uh, keen on raising the children as um, mothers, you know, generally do. And as a result, he sort of does in terms, you know, project that feelings in some of his characters. So notwithstanding the fact that there are prominent female characters, there are instances wherein he, his uh, personal life can easily be uh, seen in his works. That's so interesting, thanks Hannah, and it's so interesting as well to hear um, accounts of male writers bringing their personal lives into their literature, because that's a trope that we often have to contend with, um, you know, as women um, or, you know, women writers. So thank you for that. Um, Dervla, if I could quickly come to you there. Yeah. Um, so Alex's question about, you know, Trinity is sort of a, a literary space. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what, like, I suppose it's down to, I guess, a nexus of things, why Trinity might be particularly productive space for writers. I suppose there is, you know, both Trinity as like a cultural entity, you know, the oldest university in Ireland, there is a specific history to it, um, which I didn't get any time to, to go into really. Um, and there's also, I suppose, like the, the literary history of the space as well. But that isn't to say that other universities in Ireland um, don't have a similar uh, history of the UCD, UCC, all of these places. Although I will note that nobody has ever written a novel, to my knowledge, of my alma mater, UL. So somebody should should take up that mantle. Um, but yeah, I suppose it is. It's about, I guess, maybe the history of the place. I would also say it's perhaps about the the architecture of the place that perhaps might have something to do with it. But that's obviously my own uh, research biases coming out. And I suppose from a, a the maybe a publishing perspective, yeah, the recognizability of the space and certain writers who have emerged um, from Trinity might also have something to do. So I think it's probably yeah, quite a complex intersection of all these things and, and something that I'm like, quite interested in unpacking at some point in my life. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's sort of gas to see in, in the media, we have this idea of the Trinity novel and like women writing about Trinity and Neve Campbell, I know, disputed being classed as a Trinity novelist because she did her own degree in UCD. And um, for any audience members who might want to write the next campus novel, you heard it here first, um, you should write about UL. Uh, <laughs> for that. Um, thank you so much again to both our speakers, to Derbla and Hannah. Um, they were two genuinely fascinating papers. I really enjoyed that. Um, and thank you for answering all of our questions. Um, so we'll leave it there. But just as a reminder to everyone that our last uh, seminar will take place on the 4th of May, um, so two weeks from today. And that will be with Dr. Sinead Moriarty, who will be speaking about Victorian fundraising literature and the Royal Hospital for Incurables. And you can register for that on Trinity Long Room Hub's website. So thanks a million uh, for everyone um, who came and thanks a million to our speakers again. Um, the Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.